In this episode, it's my great honour to speak with David Bromwich, Stirling Professor of English at Yale, about the relationship between persuasion and reform as it played out in the lives and imaginations of two great statesmen, Edmund Burke and Abraham Lincoln. We then consider the potential for reform in the context of contemporary American breakdown. I hope you enjoy. Okay, welcome to Beaconsfield Podcast, Episode 5. Today's particularly exciting for me because Beaconsfield is a podcast in the spirit of Edmund Burke. And one of the reasons I so admire Burke and have come to understand him, even in part, is because of the work of my guest today. David Bromwich is Sterling Professor of English at Yale. He is a critic and author of many books, writing politics, American breakdown, how words make things happen, moral imagination. These are but the most recent volumes. He's also a political writer, a columnist at The Nation, and one of the very few people alive who I think thinks as Edmund Burke did. He's written a volume on Burke and intellectual biography, The Intellectual Life of Edmund Burke, the first of two parts. And today we're going to speak about the relationship between persuasion and reform. The most difficult task in politics, David writes, the reason for something called statesmanship to exist is to awaken public sentiments against an entrenched abuse and convince lawmakers and public opinion to act for the improvement of justice. We're going to examine how this difficult task has met, was met, through the lives and imaginations of two example statesmen, Edmund Burke and Abraham Lincoln. We will then consider the potential for reform in the context of present-day American breakdown. David, thank you so much for, for coming on. Uh, it's, it's good to be with you. And since you asked me, uh, just before you introduced me, uh, to say a word about how I got to be interested in Burke and what it is I find in him that is particularly valuable. Um, I came to read Burke as an undergraduate. Uh, He was assigned for one course I took, taught by uh, an interesting uh, young teacher at that time named Henry Abeloff. The course was called uh, Man and Society in 18th Century Britain. The Burke reading though was not reflections on the revolution in France, Uh, but a letter to a noble lord, which made an impression on me. Um, I was, as an undergraduate, reading romantic poetry and some of the criticism of uh, the romantic period, including Hazlitt, and Hazlitt uh, became the subject of my dissertation and then my first book. He's probably the most perceptive commentator, if you had to pick one, maybe that Burke ever had, certainly of all the 19th century critics who wrote on Burke. He admired him hugely, but Hazlitt is a man of the left, and he uh, had an ambivalent uh, respect for Burke. Mm. Um, It was through Hazlitt's eyes I started to see him and read quite a lot of of Burke for my uh, research on that book, and then uh, started to think about Burke in relationship to Wordsworth's writing the history of the self in his great poem about the growth of a poet's mind, which is was called by later editors, The Prelude, um, and in a lot of his lyric poetry too. And the first thing of any size that I wrote about uh, Burke was in an essay that combined him with Wordsworth, um, and it was, it was called The Defense of Human Nature. Uh, seeing both of those writers, and Wordsworth also was a conscious admirer of Burke, but had been in his early years, in his early 20s, um, a partisan of the French Revolution, very hot in it, as he later told Thomas Carlyle. And it does seem that uh, Wordsworth ran some errands for the revolutionists and may have regretted it afterwards. Uh, That gets in in a coded way to the plot of his uh, account of the revolution in the later books of the prelude. Anyway, uh, the train of thought there in that essay uh, on Burke and Wordsworth and the defense of human nature was that human nature is something both given and acquired by us. Um, A later political theorist who had read Burke uh, and I think learned something from him, Michael Oakeshott, 
says in one of his essays that nobody is born human. Well, that's an odd thought, uh, that we come to know ourselves as human, that this, uh, what to call it, project of self-knowledge uh, is something that uh, can't be um, presumed, can't be uh, taken for granted. Uh, it is, it's not a conscious work. You don't, you don't decide to acquire your inheritance in human nature. Um, but coming to cherish sentiments that are partly passed on to you, that you come to hold dear for reasons you don't quite understand, um, that goes into the process, and that is part of the development of any conscientious, let's call it, human being from late childhood through early adulthood. So human nature is a part of us. It's not a possession. Uh, it's internal, and yet it enters into consciousness. It's something we must choose to participate in and not just accept our automatic participation in. The continuity of a self that has joined human nature um, goes hand in hand with, is uh, analogous to the continuity of a society. And Burke is a political thinker. I think political um, theorists, to call them that, divide into two sorts. There are those who uh, care about the state, the source of artificial authority that holds a monopoly on coercion and that orders the doings of society. Um, and Hobbes is a good example of a theorist of the state, Hegel perhaps another. Um, then there are theorists of society who begin with some, some idea of human nature and what it is from its habits, its customs, its ways of doing things. And working up from that, try to think about what human beings in the mass are like, how they get along, how they can be given coherence, how order comes about and what are the dangers from disorder and so on. What is a just, what is an unjust order? Hume and Montesquieu in the 18th century are, I, I would say, thinkers who begin with society and work up from there. And Burke is another. He's of that party, as I see it. Not, not the Hobbes-Hegel kind of state theorist, um, but um, uh, of a kind with, with Hume, who wrote about human nature also, and uh, Montesquieu. This is not the only way to see Burke. Um, there have been uh, natural law interpreters of Burke who see his lineage as going back to Aquinas and Aristotle, for example, especially an American line of interpreters that way. Um, and there have been, I suppose, Whig interpreters of Burke who just see him mainly as a codifier and a relay team member for a tradition of Whig pedagogy and lawmaking. Um, those people tend to see Burke as pretty unoriginal, but valuable for his eloquence and his processing in a certain period of thoughts that were, um, uh, you know, given to him by tradition. That's not how I see him. He is, to me, a moral psychologist, mm -hmm. um, quite as powerful in his way um, as anyone one would give that name to, as William James, as Freud. Um, I think Burke learned from Shakespeare. I think Burke has some of the kind of value you find in Shakespeare's um, insights into individual character, into the way order and disorder happens in society. Um, so the turning point in Burke's political career really comes in the 1780s. Before that, he is a a partisan, uh, a loyal, eloquent, and highly valued member of the Rockingham party of Whigs who opposed the aggrandizement of power by King George III and opposed the American War and were in favor of um, the reform of the legal code to make there be fewer capital punishments um, and uh, the reform of parliament to the extent of not allowing the king um, to, for example, exclude Wilkes or other popular politicians who had won legitimate elections. So Burke, in that period, if, it, if that had been all, would have been a hero of, if you can call it, modern liberalism. Mm -hmm. And he remained largely for the work of that period, I think, a, a uh, um, you know, much admired exemplar for Victorian free trade liberals uh, like John Morley 
and others who wrote two books on Burke. But the break comes in the 1780s when Burke is on two tracks. One is the reform of British policy uh, in India, which a policy that was owned and executed by the East India Company. Burke undertakes uh, with a preoccupied sort of vehemence the investigation of the abuses of power by the East India Company and therefore the abuse of imperial rule, the responsibility of imperial rule in India by Britain itself. Um, this comes to its climax in the, what is it, seven year long impeachment of Warren Hastings, the uh, recalled no longer um, ruling um, uh, head of the Supreme Council of the East India Company, the governor of Bengal, um, and the impeachment of uh, Hastings ends in defeat for Burke and his allies in Parliament. But uh, later reforms of British rule in India owe a good deal to the, um, what to call it, the, the courageous, the adventurous, the obsessive prosecution that Burke undertook and um, that filled his time for a good part of 14 years uh, beginning. Uh, in uh, 1781 or so. Then comes the French Revolution, uh, which Burke um, sees on its way in 1788 and is a little hopeful that it can bring change to this despotic state, or more despotic anyway, than Britain. Um, but he grows alarmed uh, increasingly in the course of the year 1789 when the Third Estate doubles its representation in the assembly, uh, and then when the relationship between uh, the crowd in the streets and the lawmakers in the assembly becomes very ambiguous, and it starts to look like um, a version of what we now call um, populism, dangerous populism. That's not a good enough word for it. It was a revolution. Um, there have been movies about it. There is a popular novel about it by Charles Dickens, who read Carlyle's history of it. Um, I would say that the uh, the movie uh, called Danton by Andre Vida gives a telling and I suspect highly uh, realistic account <laughs> of Danton in the second or third year of the revolution. That's how Burke saw it, and he didn't like what he saw. So at that point, Burke becomes protective towards Britain and the British constitution in a tone of alarm, anger, reproach, um, and anti-revolutionary protest, thoroughly anti-democratic in temper, uh, of a kind that no one quite would have expected of him before. And his reputation as a conservative um, comes from writings of this period, from 1790 and after. Um, which is not to say Burke was a, a, any kind of populist or Democrat before. He was not. He was a parliamentary um, liberal, to use the anachronistic term. He was a, he was a liberal constitutionalist. Um, but later Burke uh, is a thoroughgoing anti-revolutionary, and the um, change of government in France that he feared, and that, you know, uh, really the fears were... Um, uh, came true with the um, uh, Napoleonic stage of the French Revolution, um, Burke uh, starts to write in an apocalyptic tone about uh, an earthquake, uh, a, a, a war uh, against human nature itself, and the possibility of human nature itself being lost through this extraordinary growth of a popular tyranny. Um, and so Burke is often cited by 20th century commentators looking back as one of the first, so to speak, prophets of totalitarianism. Wonderful, David. That's, it's, that's a wonderful summary. It's something that really stands out about your interpretation of Burke is that you think that his primary faith is in human nature itself, if I'm correct, maybe. You know, you know that notion of the final charge of the Hastings impeachment being I impeach him in the name of human nature itself. What did that faith in human nature, or at least that interest in it, have to do with his thinking about reform? Because this is something I've been thinking about for a long time. You know, reform, as he says, stems from this disposition to preserve and this ability to improve. What did that mean for Burke 
And how did he think about change? Because if he's this liberal constitutionalist, to use the anachronism again, before the French Revolution, what was his attitude to improvement? That's what I'm quite interested in. He believed that uh, to be a political reformer um, and have any chance of pragmatic success, you had to build on the already existing materials of society. Uh, In his case for uh, ignoring the American Revolution, which he didn't call a revolution, and preserving what he thought a valuable partnership in trade with the Americans, um, Burke made the strong argument that what you saw in America was only an extreme extension, but a very intelligible one, of the traditions of British liberty. And that, that the British, um, uh, what to say, governors and parliament as having some uh, remaining power over America ought to regard America as a partner in trade and to have, a, as it were, a fraternal relationship with this country that now sought equality. Don't even try to tax them. Just let them go, but stay close to them. Um, because this family of British liberty was valuable to Britain itself and he thought valuable to the world. And here one has to say, Burke is an optimist about the potential good to be propagated by uh, the manners, the morals, the politics of the British empire. Um, so it's, it's uh, false to think of him either as an imperialist, you know, that term doesn't have our current meaning for it or anything resembling that, until the mid 19th century, really. Um, but it's also wrong to think of him as, as an anti-imperialist. He, he thought of uh, uh, Britain as having extended itself to relations with other countries, with other cultures, um, and that it ought to have a generous relationship to such countries, to take into account their laws, to suggest um, and even enforce um, benevolent reforms when that was possible. But, you know, reforms, again, always build on existing habits, manners, customs. They take those uh, into account. So one of the things he says to Parliament in urging um, leniency, uh, in urging what he calls conciliation with the American colonies is, he says, I, I, I give you only what you already have. I only give you what is your own, which sounds like uh, an argument from inertia. It sounds like um, uh, no change is possible. It, it sounds like a sign of someone who is later going to become conservative. But he is there rhetorically and psychologically conservative as a way to um, promote policies that are in fact um, politically advanced, uh, free trade, uh, more individual liberty for Americans. Mm-hmm. Let them have their experiment in democracy. We'll see what happens. It's not for us yet. Mm. And, and just to pull up a, a previous point that you made before we move to some close readings, you said that Burke learnt a lot from Shakespeare. And, you know, Hazlitt said that poetry became politics or politics became poetry in his hands. What did Burke learn from Shakespeare? Well, <laughs> um, I wrote an essay of some length on, on Burke's relationship to King Lear in his... Um, anti-revolutionary writings. And I suppose that play and Macbeth, I would say, are are the ones that matter most to him for his intuitive understanding um, of, uh, to fall into a cliche, but I can't help it, sorry, (laughs) the, the, the the fragility of a social order. What people, what people, take on trust, assume they can have always, can fall apart very suddenly between one sister's rejection and the other sister's rejection of this old retired king who didn't know what he meant by his retirement. And between act two and act three of King Lear um, is a progress from um, you know, a decrepit monarchy to anarchy and civil war. Um, and you know, the, the sense of um, vaulting ambition, as Macbeth speaks of, uh, talking about himself, um, and the the perplexity uh, that 
it constitutes, even to the person who feels it, the danger of ambition, the tendency of those who are prompted by the will to power to go outside themselves. Um, power wants more power. Um, and this is a, a mystery of human nature. Mm. Um, and it's one of the things that made me, um, you know, uh, use as the epigraph for the first volume of my biography of Burke, um, uh, power in any hands whatsoever uh, is rarely guilty of too strict limitations on itself. Um, and uh, certainly for the first um, 20 years of Burke's career, and I think even for a great deal after, one can say mm. that, is, that is his major concern, the abuse of power. Um, and it, it seems paradoxical, I think, to a lot of people who want to see Burke as a pretty narrow, habitual, um, you know, um, taking his orders from others, kind of conservative, um, to think that he's all along suspicious of power, wanting to, wanting to restrain it one way or the other. Mm. Um, but I think that is, a, that is a, an abiding um, and overarching concern of his career. Um, people want power over other people, and civilization isn't a word he uses very much, um, but enlightenment is one of his words, uh, and progress is one of his words. Um, and reform is also, and he thinks all of those social goods are connected with limitation of power. Mm. Um, well, that's probably a perfect segue then into a close reading of a passage from speech on Fox's East India Bill. So I'm going to hand it over to you, David. I think that, I mean, you've made this point before, Burke should be read aloud. And if we're speaking about rhetoric and political writing, it's probably best to hear it read aloud. Uh, so I guess it would be interesting to hear here about what the context of Burke's speaking is and how he is trying to reform by awakening, I guess, a pub public sentiment to public discontents in the case of what's happening in India. Right. So the situation of India in 1783, um, when Burke pretty much writes the policy of, of Fox's East India Bill and then gives the a speech to support it. Um, the Governor General of India has been recalled and there's the beginning of an investigation of what he uh, did, including the wrongs, the abuses of power. It was essentially an extractionist policy rather than a policy of trade that benefited both sides. And Hastings used the, you know, uh, the existing middlemen and factors and tax collectors of India for the benefit of the company. And he defended himself, uh, Hastings did, um, a, a pretty openly along those lines. Everything I've done, he said, is for the benefit of the company. And Burke's response to that is, everything you do should be for the benefit of two parties, the people of India and the people of England, but the people of India first. And if that's not what you're doing, if, it's, if the profit of a monopolistic commercial agency is what you're concerned with, you don't deserve to be governing um, a considerable part of humanity. So he talks in detail about the sort of abuses, financial, um, uh, the making of proxy wars and various other offenses that he uh, tracked to Hastings' governorship and laid down the um, axiom that you should be willing to institute a radical reform uh, if the abuse uh, was, if the object was great, uh, and the subcontinent of Bengal is a large object um, among others in the uh, British Empire. Burke refers to it elsewhere as the empire in the East. And by 1783, they'd lost the empire in the West, which was America. So there's that alarmism driving the speech as well. But if the object is great, this subcontinent, if the abuse is great, the misconduct of Hastings and his minions as governor, if the abuse has become habitual, and finally, if the abuse is incurable by any other means than the radical reforms that this bill will propose, then you must be willing to, to um, um, intervene. Government intervention is called for in those conditions. 
And this is one of the respects in which Burke is not at all a precursor of modern free market conservatives <laughs> in the English speaking world. Those people, um, Milton Friedman, um, Mar you know, Mag Margaret Thatcher, uh, Ronald Reagan, and their economists uh, are against government intervention in almost anything commercial on almost any call whatsoever. So Burke um, making this case um, writes about the history of India under previous invaders, the Mohammedans, the Tartars, others, and points out that they have not tampered with Indian custom, Indian law, um, the ways of doing things that are customary there with the reckless disregard that he finds in the British. So that the British have been ashamed to their own uh, good fame as a nation. Um, and there is that element of, of, I suppose, national or imperial pride that Burke appeals to. Um, but there's also a, um, a sort of horrified um, uh, denunciation of uh, everyday conduct having become brutalized by a regime that places no limitations on the power of the rulers. Mm -hmm. So this is a passage, that's a long paragraph uh, from, from the middle of the speech uh, where he's pointing to how little the British have done to benefit uh, those they pretend to rule for the good on the whole. There is nothing in the boys we send to India, worse than in the boys whom we are whipping at school or that we see trailing a pike or bending over a desk at home. But as English youth in India drink the intoxicating draft of authority and dominion before their heads are able to bear it. And as they are full grown in fortune long before they are ripe in principle. Neither nature nor reason have any opportunity to exert themselves for remedy of the excesses of their premature power. The consequences of their conduct, which in good minds and many of theirs are probably such, might produce penitence or amendment, are unable to pursue the rapidity of their flight. So the, the um, arrogance, uh, the um, vainglory, which these very young men ruling in India are allowed to enjoy, actually prevents their growing into moral beings. It is a loss for Britain as well as for India who suffers under their rule. And he goes on, their prey is lodged in England and the cries of India are given to seas and winds to be blown about in every breaking up of the monsoon over a remote and unhearing ocean. In India, all the vices operate by which sudden fortune is acquired. That's a phrase um, Burke could have gotten from Adam Smith uh, in The Wealth of Nations published seven years earlier. Or Smith could have gotten it from Burke. Burke may use it earlier, I, I, I'm not sure. Anyway, they're thinking on similar lines about the, the wrong of this sort of commercial and uh, imperial governing relationship. In England are often displayed by the same persons the virtues which dispense hereditary wealth. Arrived in England, the destroyers of the nobility and gentry of a whole kingdom will find the best company in this nation at a board of elegance and hospitality. Because they're entering parliament. Mm. They're using their East India fortunes to buy their way into political power in England. And that, again, uh, involves a double corruption. And he sees this as a pattern. The imperial abuses are going to come home. <clears throat> Here the manufacturer and husbandman will bless the just and punctual hand that in India has torn the cloth from the loom or wrested the scanty portion of rice and salt from the peasant of Bengal or wrung from him the very opium in which he forgot his oppressions and his oppressor. They marry into your families, they enter into your Senate, they ease your estates by loans, they raise their value by demand and this uh, pattern of Latinate <laughs> uh, denunciation he gets from uh, Cicero's orations contra veres against one of the Roman governors in North Africa. But um, Hazlitt thought Burke is greater than Cicero, and maybe we shouldn't doubt that judgment. <laughs> and there is, scarcely, there is scarcely a house in the kingdom that does not feel some concern and interest that makes all reform of our Eastern government appear officious and disgusting, and on the whole, a most discouraging attempt. Mm -hmm. In such an attempt, you hurt those who are able to return kindness or to resent injury. 
If you succeed, you save those who cannot so much as give you thanks. All these things show the difficulty of, our, of the work we have on hand, but they show its necessity too. Our Indian government is in its best state of grievance. It is necessary that the correctives should be uncommonly vigorous and the work of men sanguine, warm, and even impassioned in the cause. But it is an arduous thing to plead against abuses of a power which originates from your own country and affects those whom we are used to consider as strangers. And that concern with justice to strangers is to me the most moving thing about Burke's writings on the, on the British Empire. Um, it's, it's unusual in any time, in any century, for somebody of the ruling country to write in this way. Um, and Burke does it more than once or twice. Mm. That's incredible, David. I think there are a few things I just want to pull out from that quickly. I think the first, it seems to me here that Burke's anger is at the system of power that's been set up by the company. He's uh, and he takes the, the young men at least, you know, who, which in good minds and, and many of theirs are probably such might be redeemable. Does he think that these young men are redeemable? Um, not perhaps not these, um, yeah. if, if they've been stewed in corruption for long enough and been rewarded um, for characters that have grown crooked by their own prosperity. Yeah. But I, but I, I do think he believes that it is possible um, for a future generation of, uh, you know, British um, under officers in East India uh, to, to be less corrupt, to be more dutiful, to be conscientious mm. in their service, both to the company and to the, uh, uh, to the foreign people um, whom they are set in this particular relationship to. Um, I, I do think one note you're calling attention to it in this long paragraph we're talking about um, is his being appalled in a certain way that we're sending only boys there. They're mm. so young and that this is a training ground for some kind of, um, you know, realizing a fortune in England. It, it creates a path of opportunism that Burke distrusts as such. So it may be that um, to make the system um, less open to corruption, you would have to send men not quite so young mm. um, and men made more sensitive to their duty um, to, uh, uh, to those roles of, you know, in effect, um, keepers of the order, keep, keep, keepers of a, some uh, branches of the order of society, policemen, um, tax collectors, whatnot, factors mm. in India. Yeah. Moral, moral beings, I guess, yeah. And, and that's the other part of it too. So Burke, he comes at this from the perspective of the wrongdoer. So he thinks that if he, if he puts his pressure on how the English state of manners and kind of founding values are contravened by action in India, that the very, you know, betrayal of the Indian people is a betrayal yeah. of English liberty, yeah. which is also a theme in the letters to the sheriffs of Bristol. It's, it's the theme throughout conciliation yeah. speech. Yeah. Is, that, is Burke doing that to try and advocate on behalf of the Indians in the most effective way possible? Is he working from an insight into human psychology modified by English habit? Or is it a genuine sadness and anger at the fact that people in England are betraying what he has come to love, what he, his choice of inheritance? He puts, those, he puts those two considerations, and if you will, those two motives together. Yeah. And you've, you've nailed it. I mean, that's what is special, uh, unusual. Not unique, but it is unusual about him. He ha it's, it's, it's a... Um, it's an insight into the way the purpose of reform can be forged um, that he has in common with some other um, mm. political and moral thinkers. And we, we corresponded a little about this. I mean, Gandhi and Martin Luther King are two. And I think Lincoln, to a large extent, is, is, is another. What, what is special? Um, our modern, mostly consequentialist or utilitarian way of thinking about political improvement is what would be best for those people we're trying to help? Yeah. What will, be, what, what will they really enjoy? And let's take a poll. Let's have a plebiscite. Let's say what's good or bad. And then let's try to, uh, what, what's the word? We first construct the policy and then we implement it. This is the idea of policy making. And it's a modern idea. And I think there's a case for saying it began with imperialism. With, with the benevolent 
um, uh, with the benevolent side of imperialism, but it is utterly paternal and it has this architectural purposefulness. We're gonna learn what those people want there, then we're gonna do good for them. And by the way, for my country, for the United States in the late 20th and early 21st century, you know, this is the rationale for humanitarian wars. It's good for them for us to make this war on them because we can overthrow a despotic regime. And then since everybody on earth has democracy in their genes, they will want to be Democrats like us. And so you got to measure that against all the killing. Now, I'm not even going to take on that argument, which seems to me corrupt and, and, yeah. and um, self-unknowing. But, but uh, Burke, uh, King Gandhi, these others, and there are other thinkers along these lines, just reject that as a way of political reasoning. They won't make that kind of pretense and calculation. They say we have some relations that are obligatory with other people, with foreign nations, some that are voluntary, whether this is of the obligatory or voluntary sort, let's think to our own highest standard of our duty to ourselves, what mm -hmm. kind of beings are we? What, what are we doing to ourselves in doing this to them? So Burke's consideration for um, the integrity of mm -hmm. British society and the British nation in what it does abroad, um, I think is part of his total thinking about um, the way politics and morality fit together. And indeed, he said, you know, um, the principles of politics mm. uh, are, are for him only the principles of morality enlarged. He doesn't draw, he doesn't draw a sharp line at all, and indeed any line between them, the way many modern political theorists would do, the descendants of the you know, um, reason of state theorists, people like Henry Kissinger, if you want a, an extreme. You know. Yeah. And I guess, so he acts as if he says, acts as if you were always before a moral tribunal. And it's that question, as you say, like, what will you allow yourself to do? Is, right. is that, is that the what? Yeah. Maybe, um, if we there can move on. No, I was just going to, there, that there yeah. is, there is an analogy, um, between, uh, an analogy. Don't take it too far. Yeah. Um, any more than other analogies, like, you know, the nation is a family. Yes, a little bit true, a little bit not true. Um, but there is an analogy between the continuity and what we would call integrity of a person and, and that of a society. Yeah. Yeah. If we could move maybe into Lincoln then and examine that same maneuver, maybe something from the speech on the Kansas-Nebraska Act, any, any sort of passage there that you think... Is there, is there one in which Lincoln tries to awaken people to an entrenched abuse by asking them to hold up a mirror to themselves? Is, um, there, is there something like that? I'm just thinking, I'm thinking of that speech. I did line up one or two. Let me see. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, did Lincoln read Burke David? I think he did. Um, okay. There's an echo when he talks about binding up the nation's wounds. That, that's an echo of a passage about binding up our, our hearths uh, with our dearest domestic charities and so on, uh, from the reflections on the revolution in France. Mm -hmm. There are one or two other echoes that I've caught. Um, but Lincoln is a, is a writer of modern prose uh, in a sense that Burke is not. Mm. Um, I've just found in reading Lincoln, uh, uh, you know, Burke is learned and is known to be uh, encyclopedic, and even Dr. Johnson was a little in awe of him, etc. So we give him credit for knowing quite a lot of uh, Greek and Latin writing and um, political thought too. Lincoln, the the in America especially, it's part of the legend, but it's also got a certain American anti-intellectual disrespect built into it. <laughs> the suspicion is Lincoln didn't really need to read that much. He was just some kind of genius. Uh, and he had this language that people understood. But I have felt that any time I suspected Lincoln probably read something, I found other evidence that he did. He was okay. much, he's much more of a reader. I think, for example, of, of Rousseau's discourse on um, inequality mm. um, and, and other things from the Canada political theory that people have suspected. So, but mm. that's a small point. Um, when Lincoln talks about... Um, slavery uh he can do it very plainly sometimes and there he will just count on people's 
intuitive sense of um, the truth being told about something human that they feel the same way about. For example, um, he says in a late letter, um, if slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. Mm. You're invited to agree or disagree with that. <laughs> that's not in a speech. That's not where he's trying to persuade an intractable audience. But when he, when he talks to the audience of the Kansas-Nebraska speech, and that's a sort of public event, there's, you know, um, uh, uh, Stephen Douglas, um, who would become his rival in the Senate campaign in Illinois, 1858. Douglas was already a renowned figure, great speaker, called, nicknamed the Little Giant for his oratorical gifts. He's about one foot smaller than Lincoln, but a whole lot more <laughs> famous uh, in this year. And Lincoln starts uh, trailing him, following him from city to city and making counter speeches against Douglas because he felt that Douglas had betrayed the promise of eventual extinction of slavery, a promise Lincoln took to be written into the Missouri Compromise. The Missouri Compromise was an enactment of 1820 that said uh, there could be no slave states above the 3630 parallel. Um, and Douglas had engineered the repeal of the Missouri Compromise as part of the compromise over what, what was to happen to the territories in 1854, connected with the accessions of territory to the U.S. after the Mexican War. So that's a, that's a, it's a new crisis, and it's a crisis that never ends until the end of the Civil War. 1854, Lincoln is roused back into activity in politics, having given it up after his one term in Congress, and having become instead a prosperous, lawyer, a very successful lawyer in Illinois, which was sort of the California of the United States in those years. Um, but he counts on people in Illinois, uh, but perhaps in the country at large, um, accepting slavery, but being a bit ashamed of their acceptance. And he begins with that, I think, that premise in making this statement at some length in the Kansas-Nebraska speech, which is the, sometimes called the Peoria speech. That's where it was given the first great speech of his return to politics. Mm. He says about Douglas and about Douglas's having himself said, I don't care if they vote slavery up or down. The whole policy then was going to be slavery would be decided, be decided in the new territories as they uh, petitioned to become states, depending on the popular will. If you had a lot, if they, if they voted to become slave states, there could be more slave states. And that would be the end of the hope of extinguishing slavery in the United States. Mm. Lincoln will make in this speech also um, an auxiliary argument um, showing by precedent, by quoting previous enactments, how he can plausibly think and argue that the American constitutional framers expected slavery to die out and they enacted policies that would help it die, such as abolishing the slave trade 20 years after, in seeing to, that it would be abolished, saying what would be abolished in such and such a year, 20 years after the Constitutional Convention, um, the institution of capital punishment for anyone caught at the slave trade, the um, exclusion of slavery from the Northwest Territories, and he, he, he cites a number of precedents along this. So he says, we've been on that path, and we've always thought this was the right way to go about slavery. Get rid of it, but don't do it right away because it's too, um, it's, it's too sudden for the slaveholders, it's too sudden for all of us, et cetera, et cetera. So he says, this declared indifference of Douglas, but as I must think, covert real zeal for the spread of slavery, I cannot but hate. I hate it because of the monstrous injustice of slavery itself. I hate it because it deprives our Republican example of its just influence in the world, enables the enemies of free institutions with plausibility to taunt us as hypocrites, causes the real friends of freedom to doubt our sincerity, and especially because it forces so many really good men amongst ourselves into an open war with the very fundamental principles of civil liberty, criticizing the Declaration of Independence and insisting that there is no right principle of action but self-interest. And self-interest, Lincoln mm -hmm. here and elsewhere, uses as an absolute synonym for selfishness. So he is, he's 
um, talking to the audience as individuals, as persons, and saying, um, don't you believe all men are created equal? Aren't those words that stir you and that you would like to live by? Mm. Don't you feel ashamed when Douglas and the other Nebraska men, as he calls them, um, are, go around saying, as they have begun to say, um, that all men are created equal is a self-evident lie? So it's a test. It's a test of what you're feeling about yourself, which then resonates with what you are meant to feel about your country. Mm. And it's really interesting because once again, that that reference to men comes out. So, you know, Burke said before, you know, these young boys are the wise good men. In this case, he's saying forces so many really good men amongst ourselves into an open world with the very fundamental principles of liberty. So he's trying to capture that self-betrayal by appealing to who people are at their best in light of who they take themselves to be. And he's yeah. trying to expose that gap, isn't he? And it's... That, yes, that's, that's exactly it. Yeah. And, and do you think, I think also what's interesting about this is I mean, I don't know as much about Lincoln as I do Burke, but my sense is that him and Douglas have very different interpretations of what the founding values of America are, especially over that particular phrase, all men are created equal. And what Lincoln does is he traces the ideal back to its origin and finds there the spirit of its existence, the spirit of 1776, and says, this is about equality. And then how does he make that gap then between the habits of where people are, where they don't actually take you know, the blacks to be equal with the whites. How does he make that gap between the ideal that is in their history and where the habits actually are? How does he connect that up? I'm afraid to say uh, that that was a, um, uh, a, a riddle yeah. for Lincoln himself. He says uh, soon after in this speech, um, what then should we do about slavery? And he says, my first impulse would be to free them all. But, but what, what society do we have then? We have these people who are just former slaves. How are they going to get work? How will they coexist with white people who generally feel that the blacks are not their equals? And Lincoln is temporizing, compromising with that, saying even if it's not his sentiment, it's the general sentiment that won't be allowed. Um, so this is a moment of, if you will, moral equivocation in Lincoln. And he came not to admire it in himself, looking yeah. back in his later years. But it was something that allowed him to speak to people's own ambivalence on the subject. Um, he then goes on to say, or we could send them to Liberia. We could, we could call it, we could, you know, join the project of colonization, which has had a few advocates. Henry Clay was one, and he was a kind of hero for Lincoln for a while. Um, but he says, then that, that won't do. Um, we, we can't pay for it, and they'll die as soon as they're let off the ship. Uh, so that's cruelty, and what will, but then it's a third alternative to, to free them and have a kind of caste society in America. That seems uh, extraordinarily improbable as well. Mm -hmm. So he throws up his hands, actually. It's a very honest gesture. It doesn't do him any good. Later at this, slightly later moment, he says, I don't know what to do. All I know is slavery is wrong, and we should put it on a path of ultimate extinction. The mm. public mind should be made to rest that it is in course of ultimate extinction. Um, if you'll allow me one other passage, which please, is please, yeah. so well known, but it brings out a, a kind of affinity in mischief between Lincoln and Burke. Uh, Burke is not known for his sense of humor, but his irony can be, <laughs> his irony can be very playful. And once you get used to him, it can be very funny. I assume you agree. <laughs> um, I mean, and, and uh, Lincoln, it's different, but you'll see he, he has this sense of, um, you know, having the antagonist in his grips. And when Douglas, in the original confrontation there in Peoria, had made a reply to Lincoln, Lincoln, in the published version of this speech, includes a, a little annex where he replies to Douglas's reply. Um, and he says, uh, this is just a short paragraph. In the course of my main argument, Judge Douglas in interrupted me to say that the principle of the Nebraska bill was very old. Lincoln has said it's radically new and not like us Americans. Mm. It was very old, that it originated when God made man and placed good and evil before him, allowing him to choose for himself, being responsible for the choice he should make. At the time, I thought this was me merely playful and I answered it accordingly. But in his reply to me, he renewed it as a serious argument. 
In seriousness, then, the facts of this proposition are not true as stated. God did not place good and evil before man, telling him to make his choice. On the contrary, he did tell him that there was one tree of the fruit of which he should not eat upon pain of certain death. I should scarcely wish so strong a prohibition against slavery in Nebraska. <laughs> so, you know, this is, um, there's some, I guess you feel that in both writers, there is some um, feeling of uh, just energy and um, invigoration yeah. that comes from their knowing that politics is their element. Um, and this is not true of everybody who is involved in politics. It's, yeah. it's indeed not true of many who were far more successful politicians than Burke or far longer lived um, leaders than Lincoln. Uh, and it's uh, just before we move on cause to, to American politics. I mean, one of the things I loved about your writings on Lincoln is there's this subtle moment you pull out when he writes a letter to an author on Shakespeare. And he says, and he's speaking of the tragedies that he thinks that nothing equals Macbeth and that he preferences, oh, my offenses, oh, my, oh, my offenses, rank Claudius's speech rather than Hamlet's to be or not to be. Yeah. Both these men are men of energy. Both of these men are men of ambition, but they call themselves old Whigs, these who have a disposition to preserve. <laughs> so is there oh, this? It, yeah. That's true. Um, yeah. That's true. Burke likes to make his arguments from a solid ground of common places people are used to hearing. Uh, and in fact, in 1788, in the um, Regency crisis, when King George III was thought to have gone mad. Now we only know, we know it was a disease called porphyria, but they, and it mm. kept coming and going with him. But, um, uh, you know, Burke's party uh, was trying to take hold of power uh, by the agency of their ally, the Prince Regent. And Burke was a complex defender of this position because he didn't think um, other parties should be allowed to manipulate a king and, and turn all power over to to parliament, he was to that extent defending the monarchical part of mm. mixed constitutional government. But he says it's a very interesting statement um, when uh, uh, Fox uh, has pitched for uh, um, comparing the uh, 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 change they're going to ask for in instituting a regency while the king is mad, uh, comparing it to the uh, uh, Glorious Revolution. Um, of, 16, of 1688, Burke says, don't do that. The precedent of a revolution is for a revolution. <laughs> and, we don't, and we don't wanna say that we are revolutionaries. Yeah. And, in, and in, in Lincoln's case, you know, he'll say in, um, in 1860, uh, in his, I think it's in the, in the uh, Cooper Union speech, yeah. Um, the principle of the Republican Party is eminently conservative. Mm. We go back to the founding documents. You who want to, you know, enlarge the territories open to slavery mm. are not in line with the founders. Mm. I just think it's interesting that, you know, if Lincoln, without getting to psychological history, if Lincoln sees himself in Macbeth and Burke might see himself in Lear, that there's this tension between their own noble purpose and <laughs> where that, that they are at, that they're always trying to negotiate in the dense medium of politics. And uh, that might reflect in their persuasive approach. What do you think? Um, they're, they're both um, complex characters who know something of their own complexity. Um, I think Lincoln was more prone to uh, self-doubt and um, self-accusation than Burke was. It's been truly said about Burke and uh, for someone who admires him greatly as I do, but wants to stop short of hero worship, it's something that must be acknowledged. Burke never could admit that he was wrong. Yeah. Um, whereas Lincoln's perhaps greatest speech, certainly his noblest, the second inaugural, is for much of its length, one long admission that the country has been wrong for a long time about what he calls American slavery. Mm. And that even his perhaps necessary temporizing in a speech like the Kansas Nebraska one now looks to him retrospectively um, like a kind of shameful thing that one had to talk that way. Mm. Um, so 
but they both are, I mean, they both are great readers of Shakespeare and you can't be a deep reader of Shakespeare um, without knowing there's, you, you know, we are very mixed beings. <laughs> So. <laughs> and we might just we might just stop with a moment on American politics, a quick reflection. But you've been writing a lot uh, in the nation, not just in the nation, but you know you've also signed the Harper's letter. You've been thinking and writing a lot about what's going on in America, and it's my sense that you feel that a mobocratic spirit, to borrow Lincoln's phrase, has gripped politics on all sides of on both sides of the divide. I was wondering if you could speak to us about what this mobocracy is doing to American manners and whether it might be removing the felt attachments of ordinary people that make the kind of persuasion that we've been discussing today possible. Yeah. Well, people, uh, for, um, for political, uh, rhetoric, uh, uh, persuasive speech, um, uh, as the going, a form of manners in politics, for that to be normal, uh, people have to uh, be willing to listen to each other in the form of arguments, not reactions, mm. um, and to value most policies that look ahead and tell you how they're going to get from the present resources and the present predicament um, to some future better condition. Um, so it, requ it requires so, uh, some civic patience and intelligence mm. um for that for that process to um um you know to, to seem the normal way of things in in a uh uh in a polity and it, it's you know it's not as if uh the united states has <laughs> has been an ideal forum for the high-toned debate of issues uh, with honest presentations on both sides um, very often uh, in my lifetime, that's not the case. But what has changed, um, there's, you can trace it back to various starting points. Mm. I would, I would, the first plausible real starting point for me would be the election of Reagan, um, who was so far below the level of answerable performance as um, a politician who had really mastered issues. Um, so much far below the level of previous presidents that you you were forced to recognize if you had any honesty that he was a kind of front man, a, a, a wielder of slogans, a very good speech maker, a gifted presenter, but not much more than that. And that things weren't being argued out at a high level uh, in those mm -hmm. years. Um, but certainly another um, uh, marker was the the attack on the US um, on September 11th and the reaction to it that the United States um, performed with very little dissent at the level of um, uh, of the lawmakers. I mean, we enacted the Patriot Act, uh, which was an extraordinarily repressive um, uh, meshwork of security measures that that made far less civil liberty um, be the understood condition of Americans than ever before. It was as if uh, ready for the occasion. It, it was unveiled, you know, just days after mm. the attack. So somebody had been working on that. And the vote in the Senate on the Patriot Act was 98 to one. And the one, what, a, what, a, uh, what an honorable thing to do. Russ Feingold was the one vote against <laughs> So, you know, that's another moment. And then the war against terrorism, um, mm. justified as we now know on the basis of lies, but instituting a great many uh, proceedings and setting new precedents for Americans that people hardly had time to digest, such as Guantanamo, such as um, the legitimation of torture. Um, that's another a, a marker where things were not threshed out in public. Things were never properly debated. The Democrats, went along with those policies of Bush and Cheney without proper opposition. Once they got the majority in, in the Senate and in Congress in the 2006 midterm election, they didn't investigate, they didn't try to reform, they didn't do any of the things you would have expected. And the, the head of the Foreign Relations Committee, who could have been part of that process at the time, was Joe Biden, now the president. He did nothing. So there, there is another moment, but I think the, the, the accelerating series 
of protests about the police killings of black people and uh, uh, in some case, uh, counter killings, um, much more, uh, uh, less likely to be remembered now, 2014, 15, 16, 17, et cetera. But it really, it ramped up into a new phase of, um, I suppose you'd call it moral panic on both sides um, with the election of Trump. And then Trump, the, with the, um, you know, uh, all purpose at every hour, focus on the actions of Donald Trump, um, who is nothing but a showman, who is nothing but mm. a much, a much, much cruder, um, more sh a thoroughly shameless version of the kind of salesman politician that that um, that Ronald Reagan was, but somebody who didn't have compass mentis. I mean, Trump, mm. the if you will, the not redeeming, but the the fortunate thing about him for us Americans is that he he really couldn't put three thoughts together. It was all a matter of it's all a matter of you know working up the emotions of the crowd that um, yeah. that that adulated him uh, and that that saw him as the alternative to a society falling apart in ways they found it hard to specify. But the wars were certainly part of what worried people and made them vote for Trump immigration and the proper limits to be put on immigration were not, and the loss of jobs in, in, in America, the loss of the industrial base, which the intervening Obama years had done very little to remedy. Um, so, you know, you have this and you have the riots um, called protests, but at night they turned into riots in many American cities, um, roiling the populace, making the right wing very angry and making the left, um, you know, proud of the consistency of the protest, but at the same time concealing a good deal of the millions of dollars of destructions to small business that occurred. Um, and now it climaxes, you know, last month, January 6th, in the invasion of the Capitol by the, the first real visible um, and shocking right-wing mob that we've seen, yeah. um, but doing something so much more spectacular than the left-wing protesters had done in Minneapolis and Seattle and Portland and so on. And I guess, you know, you reference in one of your latest articles, Lincoln's Lyceum address. And in that he sees the solution to this kind of madness as being a, to remind people of who they are, as we've been speaking about this whole conversation. And he appeals to that founding spirit of 1776. And he says, it's time that you restrain your energy, that energy of the revolution. And we learn to become a law abiding people. What do you think the narrative is that the Democrat establishment has to take now in order to become a reform government and actually oh. start to... Oh, thank you. No, no, nobody with any real power in my country is going to ask me that question. So let me tell the <laughs> Democratic Party, which I've been voting for most of my life, yeah. um, <laughs> what they should do. Um, there should be some common sense and honestly... Um, articulated and announced um, limits on, Im on immigration. There should be a humane, um, but um, not unlimited policy on immigration. Um, the battles that uh, Trump was fighting to preserve some American autonomy um, in trade for the restoration of American industry to some extent uh, at versus the overwhelming, uh, increasing energy of China on that front, that should be pursued, but pursued in a way that doesn't lead to war, that doesn't lead to, you know, terrible open contest. But, you know, that's, that's on, an, on another front, I think something that, that ought to be done. Um, and I, I should say um, the, the Democratic Party should reassert their, um, uh, you know, dedication to the value of free speech and free debate by exemplifying an honest and honorable a form of disclosing and defending their own policies, but not trying to censor the opposition, not uh, using their, you know, youth soldier divisions in the media um, to uh, knock people out of jobs at newspapers, um, you know, in podcasts, uh, in the whole world. The, that high tech is so much in charge of now. And I, what, I'm, what troubles me, the fear I have, 
is that the 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 anger of the Democrats, uh, their own fear of the right wing militias and mobs, will drive them to crack down as far as possible and use the alliance that they feel they have with most of the media um, to channel what people are able to know and to make sure a nice message gets across and that bad voices are not heard at all. Whereas I think the point is to answer the bad voices in reasonable terms and show what the yeah. facts are. Yeah. So the way is liberal reform. That's the, that, that reclaiming liberal reform is a way out. Do you think that will happen? I, I really, I don't know. It's a common, um, mm. uh, what to say, diagnosis of our condition right now to say that the, the left liberal side um, pretty well owns the culture. Uh, the the respectable culture, the mainstream media, the educational institutions. Um, but, you know, the Republican Party voting for president got 74 million votes. Um, what do you do about that? Uh, you know, uh, the Democrats do seem to me a genuine political party, though confused, divided, and um, lacking good sense uh in a, in, in a lot of uh cases right. but the republic the republicans are no longer a party and their um future mm. is harder to predict i mean whether it will be whether it will be along the more or less moderate opportunistic path that their minority leader in the senate mitch mcconnell seems concerned to map out or whether it will be someone else inheriting the mantle of trump mm. and um more more of that kind of mob uh, demonstrating its will. Yeah. But it's not a good, it's not an easy moment for American democracy. I hesitate to say it's as, it's as, <clears throat> um, it's as dangerous as say 1858, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's still, in, in spite of, I believe the, 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 the better political uh, uh, personality having won the election, I yeah. still think it's, uh, it's a very tricky moment and, and not a moment of, uh, of balance. So. Well, I wish your country well. I mean, we want it to go very well from here as well. <laughs> but thank you so much, David. This has been such an honor and such a wonderful conversation to share with you. Um, you've had such a big impact on the way that I read Burke, that I think about him and, and try and uh, listen to him in my own life. So thank you so much for coming on and speaking with me. It, it's actually been a pleasure. And thanks yeah. for your questions. And we'll stay in touch. Thank you, David. Thanks so much.